Hi guys, it's Annie McDonald, physio and strength and conditioning coach, and welcome to the Informed Performance Podcast. On today's show, I have Sierra Berge, the return to performance lead at the Houston Texans NFL team. In this episode with Sierra, we'll be largely focusing on how the Texans systematically run their performance and medical department in a way that's perhaps different to the conventional way in the NFL. Sierra will also walk us through how they strategically and cohesively manage injuries as a team using ACL and hamstrings as the examples. It's always appreciated when staff in team sports in particular are willing to lift the lid on their approach and methods, so I'm grateful to Sierra and the team at the Texans for their willingness to be transparent in this episode. Today's episode of the Informed Performance Podcast has been sponsored by Vald Performance, makers of the Nordboard. The Nord board has become the gold standard for assessing field-based hamstring strength. By combining advanced sensors, real-time data visualizations, and cloud analytics, the Nord board helps practitioners to accurately measure, monitor, and train individuals' hamstring strength or imbalances. To learn more about the Nord board, visit our sponsor, volperformance.com. Informed Performance is a proud partner of Humac Norm by CSMI. One of the best and simplest ways we can resolve a limb symmetry strength deficit is simple isolated joint training on the HUMAC norm isokinetic system. Isokinetic resistance allows the athlete to stress their muscles at full capacity throughout the entire range of motion. Supplement your athlete rehab or performance program with a highly effective and data-rich machine by using the HUMAC norm isokinetic system by CSMI. To learn more about the new Humac Norm and Refurbis machines, visit humacnorm.com. You're listening to the Informed Performance Podcast with me, Annie McDonald, and here is today's guest, Sierra Berge. Sierra, welcome to the show. It's, it's a pleasure to have you on. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Of course. Um, just to kind of kick us off, would you be able to outline your background, kind of take us sort of through your career moves and bring us up to speed? Yeah, for sure. Um, so going into undergraduate, I grew up in Wisconsin and went to undergraduate at the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee, and I was really interested in strength and conditioning at that point, and so that's kind of what I wanted to focus on. Um, and so graduating undergrad, I worked in an outpatient physical therapy clinic that happened to have a performance program associated with it. Um, and so we'd see a lot of like high school, college-age athletes, and then also athletes who would run out of physical therapy visits, for example, in ACL, they'd run out of their 24 visits, and then they transition over to the performance program for the end stage of their um, rehabilitation. And I think that just kind of sparked my curiosity about physical therapy as a career path in general. And so I decided to look into it. And so um, after a couple of years of working in that realm, I went to physical therapy school. Um, so I went to Duke University in North Carolina um, and spent three years there. And then after that, I just like was interested in residency as a path because I am impatient and wanted to get better at my job faster. And so uh, I pursued residency and ended up doing one at Houston Methodist Sugarland, which is an outpatient um, physical therapy clinic in Houston, Texas. Um, And so I was there for that year, did a residency there. And then I stayed on after the residency um, for two more years, was on faculty for their residency program. and just gained a lot of great experience in the outpatient setting. Um, And then I was just kind of curious what working in higher level athletics would look like. Um, And so being at Duke previously, I knew that Duke had a um, fellowship there, a division one athletics fellowship. So while I was in Houston, I ended up completing a manual therapy fellowship just because my faculty from the PT residency had a manual therapy fellowship. So it was 
sort of a natural transition. So I did that, but then, um, yeah, looked into the division one athletics fellowship, um, at Duke because I'm not an athletic trainer. And so sometimes entry into athletics, especially as a physical therapist only is a little bit tough. Um, so looking into that fellowship at Duke, I applied for that and interviewed and found out that I thought I would be a really good fit and a great setting for me. So I accepted that position at Duke. Um, and so as part of that year long fellowship, I got to get experience with all different teams at Duke. So all 26 of the sports I spent a decent amount of time with, um, which was a really, really valuable experience for me, just learning all the different cultures of care um, and how all the different teams run there. And then after that um, year-long experience, they hired me on to stay. And there I primarily worked in Olympic sports. So for those of who, people who didn't know, because I didn't know at the time, like Olympic sports is basically in college, it's everything except football and basketball. Um, and so it's all the rest of the sports there. Um, and so worked with them as a physical therapist and then started to get into sports science there as well um, and collaborated with the strength and conditioning crew a lot, um, too. So I ended up running sports science data for the women's soccer team and then helped adopt other processes across some other teams there while I was at Duke. So I was at Duke for three and a half years in total. Um, and towards the end of that time, uh, the Houston Texans reached out to me about kind of a hybrid role um, that they were interested in that kind of combined strength and conditioning and physical therapy and sports science. Um, and so interviewed for that position and ended up accepting that. And so after a few kind of role changes, um, I've been at the Texans for it'll be three years this November. Um, so I've worked in a couple of different roles here, but that's kind of my journey to get to um, at least the professional ranks of things at, um, in the NFL. Good stuff. You've obviously done a lot of schooling in that process, and it's it's different outside the US, but specifically within the US, I've had quite a few younger clinicians ask me before, or, or newbie clinicians, probably better term, mm -hmm. um, about should they do residency or should they not? And the thing I always find is people I know that work in sport who didn't do a residency in their own probably bias and experience say, no, you don't need to do it. And then people I know who work mm -hmm. in sport who have lived their life doing a residency say, yeah, you've got to do it. It's the only way in. Um, whoever yeah. kind of advises people to do what they did. As someone who works in pro sport, who's done a residency, I'm just kind of curious. You probably get people asking you that same question, no doubt. How do you advise like a new clinician in the States specifically as to whether they should go the path of residency or, or not? Yeah, I think it's a super personal decision and it happened to be the right decision for me, but I don't believe that it's the right decision for everybody. Um, I think like the benefit in doing residency is you have forced mentorship and people that are paid to answer your questions. So as a new grad, you don't know what you're doing, even if you don't know, you don't know what you're doing. And so I think having people around you who are forced to answer your questions um, and just create this natural educational space for you to grow and learn. I think that that's really, really valuable. It's not that you can't get great mentorship outside of residency. You're just not guaranteed. Where in residency, you're guaranteed um, to get great mentorship or to get mentorship at least. And so I think that that's really, really valuable. I think the other piece that's valuable is like getting into higher level sports People always say it's more about who you know than what you know, which I do think is partially true to at least get a spot. I think you need to know what you're doing when you get there, but it you, does help to know somebody in order to get into higher level sport. And so I think that, you know, making a, a decision to do a residency or do a fellowship, you're also making a network expanding decision. And I think that that never hurts, right? Like I have my 
Duke PT network. I have my Duke Fellowship network. I have my Houston Methodist Sugarland network. And so like all the graduates of all of those programs are now part of my network. And so again, like I think you can get anywhere without doing a residency or with doing a residency. It's just like those, in my opinion, are the benefits. Um, And so it was a good idea for me, but I don't think it's the right decision for everyone. And I don't think like um, if you're doing it to check a box because you think it's going to help you get a job, I think it's a horrible decision to do one. Like you have to be um, invested and willing to put in the time and like really, really passionate about it. And um, I just like would not make the decision to to check a box or like if you interview and the faculty aren't a good fit, but you're like, well, I got a spot. I got to do a residency because that's how I'm supposed to get to point Z. It's like, that's probably not the right fit for you. So I think it has to be like a good personal decision, a good financial decision, a good geographic decision. It has to be like a lot of things have to weigh in. And I absolutely don't think it's for everyone. No, good stuff. Um, I want to go back to the kind of Texans. What, what does your, what does your day job look like? What does your current role look like within the NFL? Yeah. So um, I kind of have a unique role, at least within the NFL, just because I'm not saying this is a unique role across sport, but within the NFL, this is, I think, the only model that does it this way. And so about um, a year and a half ago or so, the um, executive vice president at the time elected to split our medical department in two. So I would say the traditional model of... um, rehab care in the NFL would be there's a head athletic trainer, there's a director of rehab, and then there's the athletic training staff and which may be athletic trainers only or a mix of PTATs. It just kind of is a little bit dependent on the team. And so then largely the director of rehab is going to take care of a lot of the longer term athletes in collaboration with the athletic training staff. But then they're also managing all of their logistics and all the day-to-day stuff and all of the bumps and bruises and small injuries all the way up to the big injuries. And so that's kind of the current model of care. And about a year and a half ago, our executive vice president at the time elected to split the department in two and make a department of athletic training and a department of return to performance. Um, And so the department of athletic training here handles a lot of the logistics, a lot of the um, getting athletes prepared for practice, helping with recovery and regeneration after practice, taking care of athletes during practice. Of course, managing injuries on the field and all of that stuff. And then also managing the athletes that are playing with pain. So like an athlete sprains their ankle, but they're going to keep practicing and kind of make it through the week and still play on Sunday. So the athletic training side manages that fully on their own. My side or the side that I work under is the department of return to performance. And we basically handle any athletes who are missing time. And so that's everything from a maybe a bad lateral ankle sprain that's going to be out for a couple of weeks to a six to eight week hamstring strain to a nine month ACL tear. So kind of anything that's on that side of the workflow, we are directing their care. Um, and so I think that, you know, it, it works well here because it's not that the athletic training side, the staff on that side, which also includes physical therapists or dual credential people, it's not that they can't handle or aren't qualified to do the long-term rehabs. And it's not that we're not qualified to get athletes ready for practice and get athletes ready for games. It's just, if you're going to do a great job with two things, you're going to do a really, really great job in-depth job with those two things, rather than being spread so thin that you're doing eight different things and you can't possibly do anything to the fullest extent. So my job, along with my boss, who um, we can speak about her a bit more later, but is Sue Falsoni. She's our director of movement and return to performance. 
Um, and then also in my de- in our department is John Vaden, who's a PT strength coach. And then as part of our team is Joe Distor, who's the associate head strength coach. Like the four of us dive in deep with the, let's just say, eight to 18 athletes who are out and missing time. And that is our primary responsibility is to make sure um, that they're going through that progression and informed and on track and ready to roll for um, their projected return date. And so my job specifically is to kind of manage the day-to-day operations and logistics of um, the return to performance department um, and make sure that athletes are communicated with and informed and understand what they're doing for the day, have our goals set, making sure that, um, you know, athletes um, are really well communicated with that all of the staff that touch these players. So like um, individuals from athletic training, from nutrition, from strength and conditioning, from sports science, all still have input on this athlete's care, but almost myself or John are kind of the quarterback of this athlete's care as they're going through this return to play process and make sure that all of those entities are communicating well and that we're surrounding this athlete with the best care possible. Cool. And, you know, you mentioned Sue briefly then and and, and the other people that you work with, what is the kind of Texans high performance model in a nutshell or, or the system and kind of why is it set up that way? And I, I don't know, you can go through it from top down from Sue's role down or, you know, however you see fit. Yeah. So um, we actually just had an organizational restructuring. And so our department of sports performance, you don't have a director of high performance. Currently, we have kind of a director of performance and a director of medical. Um, And so the director over performance oversees nutrition, strength and conditioning and sports science and the director of medical oversees athletic training and department of return to performance. And then within our department of return to performance, Sue Falsoni is um, the director of our department. And Her job is to really help drive the vision of our department and drive our philosophical principles. And so just make sure that what we're doing on a day-to-day basis, she's almost like the big picture overview visionary of our department and making sure that everything that we're doing is aligning with our philosophical principles and everything fits within our system um, that we're building. And so that way, our system should be good enough for a practice squad guy and good enough for one of the most important players on our team. And if it's not good enough for both of those people, then there's a hole in our system. So her job is to really take those big picture things and and make sure that we have continuity across our system. Um, she has the big conversations with the front office and things like that. Um, and we'll kind of have those conversations with the director of medical as we make, you know, this guy's going to be ready in three weeks or he's not going to be ready in three weeks anymore. So kind of understanding and and making those um, adjustments to make sure that the front office is informed about what's going on so they can make roster decisions. Um, And so that's kind of her role. Um, And then she, yeah, she's in the building four days per week and is of course available on other sides of that. Um, So we're in communication every single day, but she's in the building four days per week and just helping us to execute her vision Um, And then myself and John, um, who is the other PT strength coach on staff, um, he and I manage a lot of the execution of the workouts and the day-to-day logistics and operations of all those things. And then I think one of the really, really valuable pieces is like John has worked as a strength coach before um, and then went back to PT school. And then our associate head strength coach, Joe Distor, is a really, really, really integral piece of of our team because He's on the strength staff. He understands the strength staff's 
methodology. He understands how they believe in developing strength and speed and power. And so he helps us with a lot of our end stage programming because end stage programming looks a lot like training and strength and conditioning and off season programming. And so he helps to make sure that there's methodological um, continuity across the spectrum of an athlete's recovery and really handles a lot of the programming for that end stage, because ultimately that does look a lot like performance. So it just helps with methodological consistency across the entire continuum. So that's kind of our team of people and, and their roles loosely. I feel like it helps as well. when when someone is in, if we say your camp, but they're an S and C coach, I just think cultural fit, rapport, being able to communicate with S- other S&C coaches, but from a PT perspective in S&C language is an incredibly valuable um, and probably underrated quality for someone to have as well. No, absolutely. Yeah. Like it's been an invaluable thing to have him as part of our team and like, you know, I've learned a ton as well from him. And so I think, and he's learned a ton about the early stage. So I think we're just all like, yeah, there, there's oftentimes an, I think an unnecessary battle between each of those departments when in reality, like it's just understanding the entire continuum and educating one another about the end of the continuum at which you're an expert in and like having really, really good um, curious dialogue about the middle where there's more overlap um, where both people kind of know a decent amount about. So it's been like, yeah, really, really invaluable to have him as part of our team. And I can't, our team would absolutely not be as successful if it didn't have someone who is a true professional in strength and conditioning, helping us um, take the athletes to the very end. In, um, in principle, everyone will agree that PT and S&C needs to work cohesively. Um, but <laughs> at every level in sport, right. that's not always as simple or uh, as, as carried out as smoothly as that. Um, for you guys, yeah. how do you kind of organize your week, maybe your sessions and your communication to to make that transition from rehab to performance or or at least your joint efforts with S&C work better? Yeah, I think it just starts with like sitting down and having a lot of conversations. And like it was tough when when Sue first got here, she got here in March, which is when basically off-season program starts. And so we were building this entire program as we were like taking athletes through it. So it was like we were building the car as we were driving it. And so that was a little bit scary at times. But I think it's just like sitting down, getting in the same room and getting on the whiteboard and like getting all the opinions and thoughts out there and really like um, not treating philosophical differences as right versus wrong, but really just differences like here's a category speed. We can all all agree that an athlete needs to be fast when they return to sport. Like what are your philosophical beliefs on how we do that? What are mine? Let's get them all out on the table. And I do think like once we get it all out on the table and out, out, all out on the whiteboard and ideally you're in like a psychologically safe space to share ideas that like you realize you're maybe not as different as you think you are. And you might be more open to, to learning something from someone else. Like until I met Joe, I didn't know how little I'd, knew about speed and power development, right? So like there's a, so many blind spots that I think we all have. And until we get get a, um, sit down with somebody who who knows more about an area that we don't even know anything about, like I think that's massively important. And so like as we were creating this thing, it was a lot of whiteboarding and conversations and setting rules and goals and trying to build a system together that really spanned the entire continuum. And then still, like, if you look at our weekly meeting schedule, like on Mondays, 
obviously our games are largely on Sunday, right? On Mondays, we have um, just kind of a debrief from the weekend and prep for the week. But then Tuesday is kind of like our big dreamer day where we just like sit down and talk about big picture concepts, talk about things like philosophies and beliefs and things that we want to improve. So like we actually set, even in season, we set aside intentional time to dream and create together. And I think that that time is really, really um, beneficial to just, yeah, have that space to be able to create together. And then the rest of the week, we're just kind of trying to deal with the the damage of the day and the damage of the week um, and making sure that we're prepared. But like Wednesday would be like our planning meeting to plan for the following week. Talk about what is our split going to look like for the athletes? Who's on track? Who's off track? And then Thursday and Friday, we'll do a lot of our programming for the following week. So that way we're not programming flavor of the day. You know, what do you feel like doing today? And I think sometimes that that's what happens is like when we, and that's the beauty of the setup of our department is like, we don't have to deal with as much day-to-day treatment and recovery and stuff like that. We really can have that time to plan for the following week. So we can always be, be prepared and have athletes, you know, make sure that they're meeting their goals. So yeah, I don't know if that answers your question yeah, no, partially, completely. but yeah. Have you had any, like, I'm just wondering, cause there will be people listening that work at teams where there's been difference of opinion, of course. Um, for sure. How do you think people can kind of best navigate difference of opinion in terms of like, I don't know, different methodology or um, maybe different levels of aggression with how quickly you think you can rehab a certain injury? Have you, have you got, had any, have you had much experience where there has been those differences of opinion? Yeah, I think we like encounter that all of the time. Um, and I think my coworker, Joe, actually said this. He's like, I've never met a strength coach who likes another strength coach's program. And it, it's like, it's true. Like everybody thinks that their way is better or their way is this or their way is that. And so like, it's very true. A lot of people have a lot of opinions about, and that's what's tough about return to performance in general, because like medical, the medical department can have opinions. The strength and conditioning department can have opinions and like no one will ever agree. And so it's just about like, and this is like so much easier said than done, but trying to create a space where like people feel safe enough to get all of their ideas out on the table and then have the humility to like say, you know what? I I actually think I like your idea. That does make sense. And so ultimately you have to have a tiebreaker, right? And that's where Sue comes in. It's like Joe can say, hey, I want to push this guy faster or hold him back because he's nervous. And I can say the opposite. And like, ultimately someone has to be the final person to have the tie break. But I think like testament to Sue, she's done a great job creating a safe space for all of us to just put all of our thoughts on the table. And I think that like, more than anything, that's like what's lacking is a lot of curiosity about other people um, and just the willingness to put all your thoughts on the table and like be willing to be wrong. I think that like so much easier said than done, but we've had a lot of like honest conversations in our room, which has resulted in like, I think a, a program that the four of us are really, really proud of. I think it's only good if you can be in an environment where conversations push you to the level where you get to a point in your knowledge on a certain topic where you just you you don't know the answer or yep. you need to refer elsewhere I think like just from a self-development perspective being in that safe space is probably excellent yeah and I think the other thing too is like when things go wrong because they inevitably do right like having a really honest conversation about when things go wrong and what we could do better, you know? And I think that we've done that too. Like 
we've had some issues with, you know, particular injuries at times. And it's like, all right, we got to sit down and have an AAR. Like, what is this whole thing? How do we want to make adjustments? Where do we think we went wrong? Or like, there's been other times where someone didn't get re-injured, but like potentially, you know, you might've gotten away with something because things were a little like sketchy along the way. Right. And so like, those are other opportunities where there's yellow flags that pop up like, Hey, let's like, we need to have an AAR about this one. Not that it went South, but at the same time, like, I think we could have made um, some different, you know, decisions along the way. And so that's where like, yeah, Joe, our associate head strength coach, like values that a lot. And so like we've started a document where we have an AAR after every athlete and it might be like two minutes or it might be a half hour. It kind of depends. Like, yeah, this one was pretty standard and went well. But I think that like constant self-reflection, constant review, constant curiosity about your process is just going to make it better um, rather than just bulldozing through. Yeah, agreed. Um, just to kind of lift the lid on how you do things in a more contextual way and maybe using it, you know, an injury or two for context as this kind of practical example. Can we walk through or can you walk us through um, maybe a player's journey in terms of rehab? So depending what the injury is, they go down on the field or in training, <clears throat> come into the medical room. How does that get packaged from kind of start to finish and then them getting back on the field? Yeah, for sure. Um, so I think like just starting at the event of an injury and no matter what it is, like athlete gets injured. Um, and so the first, let's say 24 to 48 hours pending, there's a diagnostic process, which usually results in some sort of prognosis, right? So whether they go get an MRI or get some further imaging and then eventually end up seeing a doctor, it's like, okay, so-and-so has a grade two hamstring strain. We project that they're going to be out for six to eight weeks, right? So then that like that prognosis timeline sort of starts our wheels in motion. And so what we do at that point is we'll take an athlete and we know what are our end phases for every quality that we value. So we value acceleration or max velocity. We value deceleration, change of direction. We value obviously position specific work. We value power. We value strength. We value mobility, right? What are our end points that we care about for all of those qualities for this particular athlete at their particular position. Right. And that's, what's great and tricky about football is like, there's so many different types of athletes and bodies on our team. And so that end point is different based on your position. Um, but like, what is that end point? And that those end points are established by strength and conditioning and established by sports science, right? Like this athlete needs to have 300 yards over 18 miles an hour in a week. Okay. That's their end point for that. Right. Um, what's an, their endpoint for a max velocity. Well, okay, what's their actual known max velocity, right? So we know all of these things. So if an athlete's out for six to eight weeks, that puts us into motion to create a plan of like, here's where we are at week eight. We know we have to be here at week eight. Where do we have to be at week seven in order to reach week eight and working our way back from there? So that way we know at week two, if you're not doing this activity, you might not make it. Or if you're already at week four's activity by week two, you might be done sooner. So and what we've always said too in our department, like we're very committed to you going from A to Z and we're not going to skip any steps, but we're not married to the amount of time that it takes you to get from A to Z. We're assuming that'll be within six to eight weeks. And so again, that prognosis gives us the opportunity to like create a plan for this athlete. We know the endpoints and then reverse engineer it from there. And so then that 
kind of information goes to the front office and then also goes to the athlete. And I think that that's one thing I hope our goal is to be athlete centered and everybody says that, but I hope that that comes across to our athletes and it has in their feedback, but just like being really honest in communication, like athletes don't necessarily care what the plan is. They just want to know, do you have a plan? And then that puts them at so much ease after they get injured. Right. And so within our goal is within 72 hours of them getting injured, we're sitting down and we're having a meeting with them. And so as part of that meeting is an athletic trainer, somebody from our department of movement and return to performance, who's kind of going to quarterback their care, someone from the dietitian staff, someone from the sports science staff, someone from kind of our like mindset, mental wellness staff, um, and then someone from the strength and conditioning staff. So all of our departments in the sports performance department are uh, uh, present at that onboarding meeting. And we all kind of talk about our expert area of how this athlete is going to go through the process. That way they feel informed and feel communicated with and feel at ease because, hey, there is a plan. Um, And as part of that communication, we will tell the athlete, this is your week one goal. This is your week two goal. And then at the start of week one and week two, and at the end of week one and week two, we're like, hey, you met your goal for the week. Hey, you didn't meet your goal for the week. So there's this constant knowing where you're not getting to the end. And it's like, surprise, he's not ready. The front office hates that. The athlete hates that. So it's just this like constant communication and goal setting along the way. Um, So I think that that's how like, regardless of injury timeline, that's kind of how the athlete is sort of onboarded to our process. And then from like an X and O progression standpoint, we sort of think about it in four different phases. And so like phase zero, one, two, three, that'd be it. That was four phases. Zero, one, two, three. Um, So phase zero is like, we call it like prepare to train. Phase one is return to train. Phase two is prepare to perform. Phase three is return to perform. So if you think about phase zero as a whole, this is like largely exists in the training room, right? Like decreasing swelling, decreasing inflammation, walking without pain. You might spend some time in the pool. You might not spend time in the pool. And so like if it's a post-op ACL, phase zero might last for two to three weeks, right? Because you're just trying to decrease inflammation. If it's a grade 0.5 hamstring, phase zero might last for by 72 hours, they're already out of phase zero, right? But it's like, these are your criteria to pass phase zero, right? In general, are you like walking around like a comfortable human without pain? And have we kind of decreased that acute inflammatory process? So that's like prepare to train. Athletes are not largely not in the, on the field at that point. Um, they're just trying to handle life. And then if you think about phase one, that is return to train. And so like our goal during that phase is getting them up to phase two, which is prepare to perform. And you think about that phase two, it's like your fat out of shape athlete that comes in in the off season is ready to train, right? They're ready to get ready to perform, but they're not performing yet, right? And so our phase one is that like um, return to train, get ready to return to training. So that's like introducing very fundamental change of direction, introducing jogging so that way you're ready to start accelerating, introducing lifts back into the weight room, all of those things. So just like kind of getting back into, are you able to start to handle a little bit of intensity? Um, So it's nothing complex. It's just like getting back into movement. And again, like in the instance of a hamstring, 
it kind of depends on how they tolerate that. We're not married that they that 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 could take two weeks or that could take two sessions. It just kind of depends. But again, we have our defined points that we want athletes to hit throughout that. So that way, in order to graduate phase one from a linear speed, like you should be able to start accelerating because if you're a fat out of shape guy coming off the street, you probably can accelerate from coming off the street. Right. And so like getting athletes up to that point. And then once we get into phase two, which is prepare to perform, right, that's when start to think things start to look a little bit more like strength and conditioning training, accelerations, more like programmed change of direction, not a ton of position work yet, because we just want to make sure that we're like building better ingredients, like making the athlete more athletic so we can bake a better cake at the end, right? And so like building better ingredients, making them faster, making them stronger, making their change of direction more comfortable. So it's a lot of like programmed kind of traditional, um, less sports specific, but very like general training. And then that phase three, that's when we start to get into more reactive things, more position specific things, more elastic things, more max velocity, a lot of those kind of end stage reactive components. And then also during that phase, it's like building someone's work capacity back to be able to handle whatever they're going back into, whether it's off season training or whether it's training camp or whether it's a game. And so that's where our sports science department really comes in and says, Hey, this is what a guy's normal week is like. This is what his largest day is like. Start to prescribe workouts that are going to prepare them from a loading standpoint from there. Then once they get through there, hopefully they get cleared by the doctor and then pending where we are in season progress back into practice. And so like short-term versus a long-term injury, it's going to look the same. It's just like, Phase one for an ACL may be three months long, right? Like phase two for an ACL may be three months long. And so that's that's how it's just going to look differently for like short versus long term. But again, like the A to Z still exists no matter what the injury is. We don't skip steps. It's just like how long it's going to take them to get through it. You, you know, you began by mentioning some physical standards that the S&C staff kind of tease out that would be meaningful for, you know, returns train or returns play in terms of running speeds and some physical metrics. Who kind of guides the, the testing process through the rehab journey? You know, you've obviously got a very collaborative way of functioning in, in the two departments together when you are kind of, you know, reverse engineering the process and you're deciding like, okay, we need to test certain benchmarks along the way. How do you then divvy up who tests what and when? Yeah. And I think that like, to be perfectly honest with you, that's something that um, what I just spoke about is sort of what we created last year and the testing piece of things. I think we're good. I think we could get a lot better at it. And that's kind of our goal for this year. We have our, our end points, right? And so for like um, a mid or skill guy, that would be like a 20 yard acceleration or max velocity or like a fly with them. But at the same time, like, what are those stair steps backwards? Again, in an ideal world, you're reverse engineering all of your testing as well. And I think we're getting closer to being able to do that. And largely, that's a collaboration between us and sports science. Um, I think the other thing, too, is like um, something that, again, we're working on getting better at and we're starting to get better at it would be like tissue specific testing. So for a quad strain, right, like we know max velocity is going to put a massive stress on the quad as is max change of direction. And we kind of have those end stage tests, but what are our checkpoints along the way for that quad strain to make sure that we're testing that rectus femoris in its most compromised position, right? Like, yes, an isokinetic test tests the quad, 
but that's not the mechanism at all for a quad strain. So, right, like we have a good understanding of post-op knee testing progressions, but as far as those tissue-specific ones, again, we're getting better at that. Um, as far as like a hamstring, again, same thing, max velocity, and we do do a lot of 1080 testing here. Um, and so like we can look at force output right to left, um, and we can look at relative to their norm. We even have, which is like super helpful for us, we have baseline data on a lot of these tests as well. So we can compare the athlete to their healthy baseline. Um, and so like, sure, 1080 testing um, from an acceleration standpoint is going to be massively useful. But then we also are big proponents here or do a lot of tests like Nordboard testing where they're healthy athletes. So obviously that's something that we're getting them back to. So like the end stage would be a full, you know, eccentric Nordic test, which is what we do with our team. But like the step back from that would be an isometric Nordic test. And like that is a very self-limiting test. So that's sort of our entry point for hamstring testing for an athlete coming back from a hamstring strain, like an ISO is self-limiting. So the athlete's in control of it. And so we're just getting objective numbers. So we just sort of like work that into their weekly workout. So that way we can say like, Hey, we're starting here. Our goal is to just become more symmetrical and stronger as the time goes on. And athletes are really used to testing that every week. So it's not that big of a deal when we just keep working it into their program. And again, like they'll get good buy-in if they're educated well about it, you know? And if they're just like, why am I doing this? And you don't have a reason, they have the right to ask that question. And so like, yeah, we've worked all of that testing in and I think are going to do a better job just expanding it even more based on tissue specific, injury specific, position specific as the year goes on. I like that concept as well of building your tests during rehab into S&C sessions or rehab sessions, whichever kind of phases you're at. I think yeah. there's a lot of push and pull on athletes with people making demands of media appearances, local appearances, uh, everything and anything yeah. that goes on. I think not having to label the test as a test and just being like, you know, they're not, you're not asking them to yeah. go into the rehab room and do a testing uh, session with you. It's just factored into time right. they've allocated already to their training, I think is a, is a very yep. smooth and subtle way to um, get better buy-in and compliance with athletes. Yeah, exactly. Like we try to work testing into our normal X's and O's, or if there's a test that we really value, and it's like, man, this could give us a lot of great information, then somehow make that regressed and progressed as part of our X's and O's. So hopefully our X's and O's are driving testing, but at times like, an ex, a test a test that we want to do, like, oh, that's a great idea. It's going to give us really good information. How can we work that into our X's and O's so that way it's it's just like seamless and not like, it's not an event. It's just an event that occurs during training. Um, and I think that that's really, really important for the athletes as well. And it's important for us too. I think as well, like whether it's a rehab or not, if you can factor in, as an example, isometric tests as part of training, um, as isometric training, but you collect data at the same time over a season, you can get a really rich data library. Okay. It might not be the most sterile testing, um, process, but you can get a really rich data library of snapshots of, you know, we managed to test X tissue or X movement this number of times over the whole season, which you can't always get done. If you're like, okay, we're going to do formal testing at set intervals. It's a lot harder to do it that more formal way than it is if you just collect, kind of quick and dirty isometric measures in training season long or off season long. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I totally agree. And I think that like, no doubt you can over test and athletes can feel like lab rats. And I absolutely don't think that that's appropriate either. But I think too, like 
neither end of the spectrum is good, right? There's too much testing and there's also not enough. And I think if you just do an isolated test once every four weeks on an athlete and the numbers are off, you can rationalize a thousand different reasons why those numbers are off. Like, oh, he didn't sleep well last night. Like, oh, he didn't, you know, his baby was up all night or he didn't eat well this morning or he, whatever. Like there's so many different reasons that we can rationalize why those numbers are off, where it's just like the more data points you have on a consistent basis at a consistent time, like the the better data you're going to get and the more you can say, actually, that is a one-off bad day and that is okay, as opposed to know like this is a trend. And so I think that's really, really important. And like, again, as simple as like consistent testing procedures leading up to that. And are they doing it after the field? Are they doing it before the field? And trying to have as much consistency in that as possible so you can put more weight in the data. Again, I don't want to over-test, but at the same time, like if we are going to test, let's try to make it as consistent as possible. I agree. I think that like getting that bandwidth allows you to actually see like a general direction to scores rather than just being these like context you know these scores with no context at least if you've got a bandwidth Mm -hmm. regardless of the context you can kind of see if it's truly an outlier for them or um Mm -hmm. or is it kind of a normal deviation for them at least so um yeah yeah no I totally agree and like it can help I think good testing data ideally just drives conversation with athletes too right and so like once you get a data point if it's if it's not that good well hopefully they don't panic, but you can have a conversation and they'll open up like, oh yeah, I didn't sleep at all the night before or whatever. That way you can like, or maybe they said, no, I felt great. I have no idea. Well, then that, that leads you to like have more of an examination and dive into it a little bit more as opposed to them being like, yeah, I'm going to be honest. I didn't try. I was tired. Like, okay, got it. So I think it's just like, like data points also lead for you to have a really good conversation um, with the athlete. And ideally that data is always being being shared with them so that way it can be a really collaborative process yeah no completely you've um you've been unbelievably uh candid and honest about your processes and the teams and um i really thank you for your <laughs> generosity of honesty there um yeah of course where can people follow you where's the best place for people to kind of track your career moves or see what you're up to yeah i um my best friend said I have the worst social media game of anyone she ever knows. So like you're you're welcome to follow me on Instagram, but I probably haven't posted since about 2018 or 20. Um, so I'm not super loud on social media. Uh, but again, you're welcome to follow me. Um, yeah, I, I'm not that big on like social anything like LinkedIn. I'm on there, but I, I guess I'm, I don't have like a big... Uh, a large social media presence. So I would say like, I'm super open to conversation with people and like, don't mind chatting with people, um, whether that's younger professionals that are curious about um, working in professional sports or college sports are curious about my journey or other people that are more established professionals that want to talk shop, like reach out to me on LinkedIn or my email is just firstname.lastname at gmail.com, not creative. So feel free to send me an email. I think like personal connection and relationship is what I value the most. And so like anyone who wants to reach out to me, um, that's probably the best way to be honest with you. Cool. Perfect. I think it's, I think it's better to be someone's worst or best, uh, social media example than somewhere in between. I think you, you know, you've got a, you, you, it's a good title from the sounds of it. Yeah, for sure. I'll take it. I, I'll wear it. I'm fine. Yeah. Well, thank you very much for coming on the show and, um, yeah, appreciate the conversation. Yeah. Thanks so much.